0: Chapter 19, Revelation chapter 19 is where we're at, continuing through our study of the book of Revelation. We're, we're going to be on verse 11 and going through the rest of the chapter. Um, you can up there, open up your Bible there, but also read, uh, look up uh, Psalm 2 if you want to turn there as well. Psalm 2. And by the way, people have been asking where, what we're going to do on Sunday mornings once we get done with the book of Revelation because we're almost done is we're going to start studying the Psalms on Sunday morning. So that's what we're going to be going through next. So if you want to be um, kind of preparing and reading and studying ahead, you can do that. Um, it's, it's going to be, I think it's very appropriate with the time that we're living. There's such great encouragement found within the Psalms. There's prophecy. Um, there's uh, real emotions and feelings that the, the uh, uh, psalmists will write about, and uh, they're very relatable. And then, of course, always God gets to enter in into the midst of that, and we get to see the hope and the various ways that we have hope in, in God and what he's done, and the Psalms, the Psalms um, do a good job of explaining that. So Psalm 2, I'll read it if you can follow along, it says, Why do the nations rage, and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in mockery. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his displeasure yet i have set my king on my holy hill of zion i will declare the decree the lord has said to me you are my son today i have begotten you ask of me and i will give you the nations for your inheritance in the ends of the earth for your possession you shall break them with a rod of iron you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel Now therefore be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. And I read that this morning because it coincides with what we're going to be reading here in Revelation chapter 19, but also because... Not only is this a, a, a psalm, a prophecy, but the, it, it declares this warning about what we're reading here also in the book of Revelation, things that I think that are going to come soon pass upon this world that we live in, but, but in addition to the warning and the, and the prophecy that surrounds it, um, the, 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 there's this, this um, encouragement um, to do something about it before it's too late, Right? To, to be wise, to be instructed, to receive the admonition, to turn to the Son, to Jesus, before it's too late. Now, before the end comes, right? Now, in the book of Ecclesiastes, it's one of my favorite books of the Bible, in chapter 3 of the book of Ecclesiastes, verse 11, um, Solomon writes, and, and he says this, We're told that God has set eternity in the human heart. I love that for a lot of reasons. First of all, because it means that all men are um, without excuse before God because God's in, in is put something into us, um, everybody. And in this instance, the reference to the human heart, as often as it is in Scripture, is really an expression that represents the whole of, of, of who we are, our mind, our soul, and our spirit. Uh, uh, and, and, and God's put eternity... Into us. And what this simply means is that every human um, has um, a God given awareness that there is something more, right? Something more than this transient world that we live in. And with this awareness of eternity comes a hope that we can one day find a fulfillment not afforded by the things of this world that we know are passing away. Consequently, um, all of the questions that um, all, one of the questions that all of mankind has been asking for centuries is how will it all end, right? If God's put eternity into the hearts of all men, we know that this life we are living is temporary, right? Then, then, then out of that comes this question: How will it all end? In fact, historians. In every age have studied the past, hoping to find a clue to understand and explain the future. Scientists have broken down the universe to a subatomic level in order to predict and try to prevent the possible answers to the questions of how it will all end. Astronomers have looked into the heavens and they've gazed into distant universes in hopes of predicting our own universe's demise. And every kind of philosopher, both ancient and modern day, those of today, they have offered their contemplations in an attempt to infiltrate the meaning of things and predict the end of it all. But even though there have been these great minds down through history, down through the ages, working to answer this question that grips every human's heart, every human's mind, no one has yet to give a definite answer or a definite solution to what is perceived to be the inevitable. Nevertheless, it seems as if each new year brings all kinds of predictions, right, of how it will all end. And with with each new prediction, the possible ways of how it is going to, to end becomes more elaborate and even more gruesome. And Hollywood does a really good job of putting that to film every year with all these apocalyptic movies that have been coming out. So it's no surprise that as the end is rapidly and obviously drawing near, many people have become concerned and even infatuated with the question of how it will all end. Why? Because many believe they can prevent it. Not too many years ago, I read an article in Discover Magazine that addressed this question, right? A scientific publication, and it, it compiled a list of, of 20 of the probable, most probable ways that the world went in. And in this article, there's this, this little snippet I want to read from you. It says this. It says, we've had a good run of it. In the 500,000 years that Homo sapiens have roamed the earth, we've built cities, created complex languages, and sent robotic scouts to other planets, it's difficult to imagine it all coming to an end. Yet it says 99% of all the species that ever lived have gone extinct. And human activity is severely disrupting almost all life on planet. I'm not saying this is true or fact, I'm just saying what it says, okay? (laughs) Which surely doesn't help matters. The current rate of extinction is, by some estimates, 10,000 times the average found in the fossil record. At present, we may worry about snail darters and red squirrels in abstract terms, but the but the next statistic on the list could be us. Then the article went on to list the 20 ways that they say the most likely and probable ways that the world could end. I'm not going to read all of them to you, but I'm going to read you 11. I think they coincide a lot with what we read in Scripture. Um, asteroid impact. Giant solar flares. Volcanic activities, right? The supervolcano. Global epidemics. <laughs> Biotech disasters. Maybe one in the same. Environmental toxins, self destruction, global wars, artificial life taking over, mass insanity. <laughs> we might be right in the midst of it. <laughs> Alien invasions. And the one I like the most, divine interventions. Amen. Now with all this uncertainty, it's good to know that as believers in Jesus Christ, we don't have to be uncertain about how it's all going to end. Nor do we need to be afraid because we have God's prophetic Word which tells us exactly how it's all going to end. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19-21, through 21, it reminds us of this saying, listen, it says, we have something more sure. The confirmed prophetic word to which you do well to pay attention as a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all. Guys, that no prophecy of Scripture has come from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's the prophetic word that shines like a light into this world, into the midst of all this darkness, confusion, and uncertainty that surrounds us, that that envelops the world that we're living in, concerning the end. Because the prophetic word of God tells us how it's going to end, and we can depend upon what God's word tells us. And in the book of Revelation, we're clearly told how it will end, and in the remaining chapters of this book, there are six key things in a timeline of events for us to take notice of as God predicts and tells us how he's going to wrap up all of human history as we currently know it today. The first is found in the last verses that we read last week, in the verses that we read and studied through last week, verses 1-10. through 10. And in those verses, we're told that first of all, in, in, in regards to a timeline of event, um, this, this final judgment comes, and the heavens rejoice, right? Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Praising the Lord, singing together about the Messiah, Jesus' second coming. Then in chapter 20, um, we see the saints, the, the wife of the Lamb who returns with Jesus, and we see in there that, that, that the saints, we, the bride, who have been wed to Christ at that time, that we will reign with Jesus, we're told, for a thousand year period of time. And after this thousand year reign, we also read in chapter 20 how Satan, who will have been bound for those thousand years, will then be released as he rises up and leads a final rebellion against God and against Jesus but Satan and his rebellion will be easily crushed. And after Satan's, defeat of man, uh, after Satan's defeat, all of mankind, we're told, down through all of time will be brought before the throne of God for final judgment. And anyone, the Bible says, whose name is not written in the book of life will be cast into a lake of fire. The lake of fire. And then lastly, in Revelation chapter 21, we're told that all things will be made new. All things will be made new. Perfect. But before these things to come to pass, Jesus will return to the earth. Before these things come to the pass, Jesus will return to the earth. And this is what's graphically foretold of in the second psalm, which we read early this morning. And this, is, and this is what we're studying about this morning in Revelation chapter 19 as we pick back up in verse 11. Here it says, verse 11, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judge and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe, dipped in blood, and and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with It, he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of the Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And Father, we pray now as we study through these verses and the rest of the verses in this chapter, God, that you through your Holy Spirit, Lord, who has written these things down, we pray, God, that you give us understanding. We pray, Lord, that we would see what you have for us individually and personally, Lord, as an encouragement, as an instruction, and maybe as a rebuke or a, 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 a correction, Lord, that we may um, walk in righteousness, that we may know righteousness, Lord, that we may know you more. Father, that we would be better equipped to love You and love those around us. Lord, thank You for this time when we can be together and join in Your name. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if we look back to verse 11, guys, we see that the very first thing the world is going to see with the second coming of Jesus Christ is this this miraculous, Event that the heavens themselves, we're told, are going to open up. And Jesus with his army will come riding to the earth for this reason to make war, we're told. And this literally means that the, the the physical sky that we can walk outside and look up to see will open up somehow, some way. It's never happened before, so that 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 I'm aware of, that I've I've seen, that you've seen, but but it'll expose the spiritual realm that we coexist with today that is currently hidden from our own physical sight in order to allow all of the people of the earth, all the inhabitants of the earth, at this time, at the end of the seven years of tribulation, to gaze up into heaven. Now I don't know exactly what this will look like, but the same event is also foretold of and described with a little more detail in Revelation chapter 6. We read about it when we when we were beginning our study in verses fourteen through seventeen and this this same event is accounted there and, and and this is what it says it says, "Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, right so it gives us an idea of what is we, I read this and I'm like, what is that going to look like? How's this going to happen? When you can picture a scroll, we all know what a scroll looks like, and as it, as it's rolled up, so is the skies, the heaven to reveal it says um." the spiritual realm and at that time it tells us that every mountain and island was moved out of its place so with that taking place with the sky being rolled back with the spirit realm being revealed there's going to create some kind of disturbance here upon the earth where mountains and islands will be moved out of their places earthquakes if you will maybe and the kings of the earth, it says, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, at this time it says, hid themselves in caves and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne, on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb. For this great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to? to stand. So it's a, it's a fearful time. And it's amazing, it's an amazing, I think, and mind-blowing thing to think that the sky which contains, think about it, the moons, the planets, the stars of every universe that's been cataloged by man, and even more, are going to roll back like a scroll, scroll and open up to reveal the spiritual realm so, so men can see into heaven but even more amazing than this is the thought that all of the men of the earth who have gathered together, we know at this time they've gathered together because they've surrounded Israel in order to wage war against Israel, that at this time as is they're, is they're there with their um, battle array on and all of their, their um, implements of war, ready to make war against God's people, is that they're going to look up and what they're going to see is they're going to see Jesus riding down from heaven. To Jerusalem in order to make war against them. Now according to Luke chapter 19 verse 10, we know that, remember this guys, think about this in contrast of what we already know about Christ because we see a, a, a really cool thing here. And we know that when Jesus first came to the earth, the, the gospel of Luke tells us in, in, in chapter 19 verse 10 that Jesus came to the earth the first time as a baby, as an infant, to seek and to save the lost, right? To seek and to save the lost. And in Matthew chapter 21, it tells us that during this time when Jesus was upon the earth, when he was about the mission of seeking and saving the lost, we remember that there was a time when he humbly rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. We remember it as Palm Sunday, right? And at that time, he presented himself to the people, to the nation of Israel as he presented himself as the king. But on that same day, Jesus' eyes were filled with tears. Do you remember? We're told. And he wept. He wept over Jerusalem. He wept over Israel and he wept because he knew that shortly after his triumphal entry on that day, he, being the Holy Lamb of God, would be rejected as the Messiah, and in doing so, he would be mocked, crowned with a with a crown of thorns, and 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 that he would be nailed to a cross. But here in these verses in eleven. Verses 11-16 through 16 in the book of Revelation, in chapter 19, we see that when Jesus returns to the earth for this second time, it is clearly with a much different mission. Is it not? And when Jesus comes, we see that, he, it, that it's to make war against those who've rejected Him, those who've rebelled against Him, those who have resisted His plan of salvation. And in doing so, He will come to judge them, it says, in righteousness according to their works, to their decisions. In fact, this whole judging and righteousness, when we think about this in relationship to the time that we live in now, guys, I think this is exactly what an unbelieving world for is is asking for right now. And they do so every time they ask this question to us or to to when you when you present God and in the Son Jesus to you. How many have ever had someone ask you this question? If if God's a good God, then why does he allow for bad things? And maybe that's a question that you yourself has asked. I've asked that as well at times, and I've come to, I think, a good reason for that. But the, here's the deal, is, is people ask that question, even in unbelieving world today, because they want justice for the wrong things that they see, right, going on around them. And that's a, that's a good thing. It's not bad to want righteous justice. And they ask this question not only because of what they see going on around them, but more often than not, it's because they want justice for the wrong things that are done against them. And yet, if the truth be told, they don't want this same righteous judgment that they're calling for to be brought against them, and neither do I. But a person who, but a, but a person, um, who does not put their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness, for the forgiveness of, of their sins Guys, the judgment of God, the righteous judgment of God, is what they're going to get. That's what we're being told here. Now, we know that God, remember this, that God is long-suffering, right? We know that he's long-suffering. And, and the awesome thing about it is the time that we live in right now, the Bible tells us that God is holding back his righteous judgment for a period of time, a set period of time. Some would even say a, a, a pre-appointed um, period of time. And and this time that has been allotted by God is a time that's been given for for God's grace to be poured out, right? A, A time for people to repent. A time for people to receive his forgiveness. A time for people to be saved from this coming judgment through faith in Jesus. And because of this, it's often been said that, think about this visually, that with one hand, God is motioning man to come to him. Come to me. Come to me. While at the same time, God's with his other hand is holding back his wrath. The Bible says he's holding back his wrath for the day of wrath. Consequently, There's coming a time, right? I think it's soon. There's soon coming a time when He, God, is going to drop both hands, and in doing so, those who have rejected Jesus as their Savior and refuse to repent of their sins will be judged. And Jesus, who is called in verse 11 here, faithful and true, will pass judgment on every one of them for all the evil things that they've done. And when Jesus returns, we're told that his eyes, we give this descriptive um, imagery here, that his eyes, which were once filled with tears, will, according to verse 12, be filled with fire. In light of this, I remind you that when fire is used as a metaphor in the Bible, it's always a picture of judgment. But not judgment alone. Remember that. Judgment Yes, but it's also associated with purification, right? God's judgment is purifying. Remember in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, it tells us that for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, that God will allow for the fiery trials to come into our lives. Why? To refine us. To purify us. To burn away the impure things inside of us that do not glorify God. But listen, when the purifying fires of God are put on those who have not put their faith in Jesus, they, in their self righteousness, will not be able to stand. And when the fire comes, the purifier fire of God comes, they will be consumed. So when we read that Jesus' eyes here in verse 12 will be like flames of fire, we see again that there's a coming judgment, a judgment that's going to purify all of creation. However, this description of Jesus' eyes being like flames of fire, it also reminds us that when He he returns, it will not be like when He first came, when He came as the gentle Lamb. Rather, when He returns, He will be as the fierce lion from the tribe of Judah, full of wrath, full of God's wrath. And remember, we're told back in Revelation chapter 6 that when the armies of the world see Jesus returning with the armies of heaven, they will attempt to hide themselves, but there will be no place for them to hide. And verse 12 also points out that when Jesus is returned, when Jesus returns, not only will his eyes be like flames of fire, it says that he'll no longer be wearing the crown of thorn. Rather, he's wearing many crowns. And the Greek word used here is for the word crown is diadem. And it refers to literally a a crown of royalty. And the fact that Jesus Jesus is, is wearing many crowns is significant because it points out the fact and it reminds us of the fact that when Jesus comes, guys, he's coming to set up his throne upon this earth, to set up his kingdom upon this earth. And in doing so, he's going to rule and reign over all of it. And this is further illustrated at the end in verse 16 of these verses that we read where Jesus is is wearing or giving this title upon himself, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And And when our king comes, there will no longer be any kings and many kingdoms. For Jesus will be the only king and there will be only his kingdom. And in verse 13 it says, And he was clothed also with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. I love this part. You see, in addition to wearing the many crowns, we see from verse 13 that when Jesus returns, he's going to be clothed with a robe that's dipped in blood. Now that's kind of gruesome, isn't it? But it's important. And it's important to note that the blood is not a carryover, guys, from the scourging that Jesus endured from his crucifixion. Rather, this blood is the blood of those many armies whom Jesus, we're told, will trample under His feet in a place called the Valley of Megiddo, which is likened to the Rhine Press. We're told of God's wrath, also very descriptive. Remember, it was in Revelation chapter fourteen where we read about that when God's final wrath was released, or is released, will be released, it says that the fruit of the vine, now keep this, this imagery in your head, the fruit of the vine of the earth is harvested, that when that happens, there will be a river that is four and a half feet deep, that will flow for 184 miles down through the valley of Medjugorje, a river of blood. In light of this, it's easy to understand why there will be blood. On the robe that Jesus is wearing. Another prophetic message of scripture that details this is found in the book of Isaiah, chapter 63, verses 1 through 3. And it says this It says, Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra, the one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength? Quote, I speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads the winepress quote I have trodden the winepress alone and from the people's no and for, and from and from the people's no one was with me for I've trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury the blood is sprinkled upon my garments and I have stained all my robes it may be a very difficult thing this morning to sit here and think about Jesus in this light. As Christians, we know Jesus as the Savior. We know Him as a, as a friend. We know Him as the Lamb, the baby in the manger who, who came to give up His life for us, that, that we have fellowship with God through Him and where His grace and His mercy and His patience and His kindness and His forgiveness is, is given to us each and every day. And we see Jesus in our, in our mind often as, as this gentle, kind, loving person. But I'm here to tell you, none of those things are any less true about Him when we also read these other things. And I think that God purposely puts this here for us to see and know because He wants us to see the, the, the whole of who He is. And up to this point, we've been assuming that, that it is Jesus, I think, that's on this white horse. In fact, it, it, it never really tells us directly. In fact, in verse 12, we're told that the rider of this horse has a name written that no one knew except for himself, which is an, <laughs> which is an, which is an illustration that simply points out that he is the inexpressible and indescribable one. And I love that. We've heard, you've heard it said that, that we're going to spend all of eternity just getting to know our Father in heaven. To know Jesus. He's inexpressible and he's indescribable. But look here in verse 13. We see, and this is the other part that I love, that really makes us know or helps us to know for sure who this is. He is given the title, The Word of God. And this title is used all throughout Scripture, right? The Word of God as it applies to an individual. And perhaps the most notable is in John chapter 1. John whose desire is that we would know Jesus Christ as God in the flesh so that we may have life and life abundantly. That's what John says. And so John begins his, his, his gospel message in verse 1 where it says this. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And, and, and the Word was God. And a little later on in that chapter in verse 14 John then goes on and says and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory the glory of the only begotten of the father full of grace and full of truth. Did you know that you can't have grace without truth? You can't have grace if there's no judgment. And in these two passages that I just read from John, and here in verse 13, I want you to know that the Greek word for the, 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 the word, word, is logos, and, and it means um, that it is, is a word that is uttered by a living voice, the logos, a spoken word. Which embodies a concept or, or, or an idea. And since Jesus is the Logos, as we read here, who was with God, the Logos who is God and, and who became flesh to dwell among us, we see that he fully embodies who God is. And Jesus being the Word of God, the quote unquote Word of God, he perfectly then reveals who God is to us. As a matter of fact, we're told this in Hebrews chapter 1, right? It tells us this when it declares that Jesus is the the expressed image of God. And the fact that Jesus wears this title, the Word of God, at His second coming, right, points out the undisputable fact that Jesus, who is God in the flesh, will once again come to the earth. And in verse 14 it says, Then at that time the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen and white, clean, followed Him on white horses. Now, we didn't read this. We read this last week. But if you look back to verse 7 and 8, okay, where we, we studied the hallelujahs, the hallelujahs that will be, be sung from heaven leading up to this time. In those verses, it describes the wife, right? The lamb. The bride of Christ. The church as wearing fine linen. And when we see this, guys, I think when we follow the context of it, it becomes clear that when Jesus returned, who's he bringing with him? Us. He's bringing us with him. And this means that we're the armies. In verse 14, the armies who follow Jesus on white horses as he then rides into battle. And and some of you guys are like, yeah, battling. Maybe some of you ladies too. I don't know. Yeah. But notice that in this battle we don't do any fighting. We don't do the fighting. According to verse 15, Jesus is the only one that has a weapon, and the weapon, the only weapon that he has, is this sharp sword that comes out from his mouth, which is a reference to the words that Jesus will be speaking at this time. And just like we read in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, and Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, the Rhema, which is the spoken word of God, is also described as being like a sword, right? And the point is, is even though there's this dramatic and, and, and fantastic event that takes place with the heavens opening up and Jesus come triumphantly entering in on a white horse, that 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 all this builds, but but this whole scene, it really appears. Anticlimactic climatic in, 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 in battle. The actual battle itself is, is anti because when the fighting begins, Jesus just simply speaks and the Antichrist and all of his armies are destroyed. I imagine it's something like this. I am and you're not. The Apostle Paul prophesies about this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 7 through 8 and he says this he says for the mystery of the lawless one is already at work and i'm like amen right the spirit of the antichrist is already among us and paul's writing about that in his day he says for the mystery of the lawless one is already at work only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of His mouth and destroy with the brightness of His coming. And when this happens, it'll be a mighty demonstration, guys, of the power that Jesus possesses. And in that moment, it'll become obvious to all why He is called the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There will be no mistake about it, just like verse 16 declares. Another awesome example of the power of the reign of the spoken word of God, guys, which we've seen and we've read about, historically speaking, in relationship to Jesus is recorded in John chapter 18. If there's like some way that Jesus has, God has all of history recorded, and when we get to heaven, we can kind of watch. I want to watch the creation. There's some other biblical accounts that I want to go, and hey, by the way, can you show me how this took place? I want to see this Incident, this scene in the Garden of Gethsemane that we read about on the night when Jesus was arrested. Because in John chapter 16, there's this power that Jesus displayed when he was betrayed and when he was arrested. And, and you guys remember at that time, Judas, he came right as the, dece- as the betrayer and, and he brought a great multitude with the officers. Uh, of the chief priests to come and to arrest Jesus. But when they came, Jesus said to them, Whom do you seek? And they replied, Jesus of Nazareth. And this is when Jesus spoke, and he said these words, Ego imimi," which is this, I am he. And the Apostle John writes, and he tells us that at the sound of these words, the power of the rhema, the power of the spoken word of God was released and the entire crowd, every one of them drew back and were were brought to the ground. They fell to the ground. In Hebrews chapter four, guys, when we talk about God's word, that's one of the reasons why at Calvary Chapel here and we as believers should esteem God's word is because it alone has power to change lives. And in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 13, it says, For the word of God, guys, is living, powerful, and sharper than any two edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit, and of the joints and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature that is hidden from its sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. In light of this, we see that there's a power when God's word is spoken not only in the time to come, but today. When you have an opportunity to visit with people and tell them about your Savior Jesus, about our God who loves us and loves them, make sure it's in the context of God's Word. There's power to change a person from the inside out. There's power to convict a person of their sin and a power to save anyone who will believe what it says from the wrath of God that is coming that we read about here today. And this is why we teach God's Word and not the words of men. And this is why we should know God's Word and tell others about what it says. And in verse 17, it says this, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of the heavens, come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all the people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw a beast, the king, and I saw the beast, the kings of the earth. And their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on his horse and against his army. And then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophets who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword was proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. The worship team wants to come up. We're going to end here this morning. Um, I, I, I don't have much to say about those lost verses because they, they, they speak it all on their own. In Revelation chapter 14, back in Revelation chapter 14, we read that when Jesus returns, there will be this, then there's this, this, this final outpouring of God's wrath That'll be, d- d- be demonstrated. It'll be at a time, I love this, it'll be at a time, we're told, when the earth is overripe for judgment. Earlier, I asked you to keep that imagery of the, 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 the wine press and the, the fruit of the vine of the earth. And, 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 and I wanted you to do that because as you, it's, it's not, Jesus is when he comes back, he's not coming to crush grapes that aren't ripe, so to speak, as we see the imagery This is fruit that's been on the vine, if you will, for way longer than it should have been. It's not edible anymore. It's not good for anything. And what this means, that it's overripe for judgment, it means this. It means that God is patient. Our God is long-suffering, and He's waiting for people. He's waiting for... Before he brings his judgment because he's waiting for people to receive the gift of salvation and be spared from the judgment that is, that is coming. I've shared this story before. It's, I think it's um, very applicable again today. I love it. You guys know that, that Quakers are pacifists, right? I don't know much else about them. I know, I know they're pacifists. Well, one night it's been said that a burglar entered the house of a Quaker. Quaker. And he was robbing this the house. Proceeded to rob rob it. And the Quaker heard the noise, and um, he took his shotgun downstairs. And upon finding the burglar, he aimed his gun and said this gently, "You can picture it, right? The Quaker, super meek, super humble, standing there with his shotgun. (laughs) Maybe not." But he said this, friend, I mean you no harm, but you are standing where I am about to shoot. (laughs) That's what we're reading about here, guys. God's about to shoot. And he wants everybody to get out of the way. You see, if you're outside of Jesus Christ, then you're standing in the place where God is about to shoot. If you are outside of Jesus Christ, then you're standing in the place where God is about to shoot. Remember, the Bible Bible tells us there's a way that seems right to man, but its end is death. Jesus is the only way. He's the truth, and he is the life. And no man comes to God no man comes to the Father except through him. He is the only name that men can call upon by which we can be saved. There is a way that seems right to man, but its end is death. And the Bible tells us about this other way Jesus, who is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. And the message that we have this morning, guys, to take to this world is to get out of the way. Come to Jesus. And get out of the way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for that you've opened up our eyes and our hearts and minds to receive the truth that there is no other way except through your Son. Thank you, God, that you with one hand have been holding back the wrath that we deserved and with the other hand wooing us, Lord, drawing us, tugging at us, Lord, to enter into relationship with you to receive forgiveness of sins. Thank you, God, that you've done everything that has to be done in order for us to be saved. And Father, we once again this morning um, confess our need for you, profess our faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, ask God to, asking you, God, to forgive us of our sin and our unrighteousness, knowing, Lord, that when we confess our sin to you, that you're faithful and just to forgive. But Lord, also knowing that there is coming a day when judgment is, is, is to be poured out. And Lord, we, we know you're righteous and true, and so we stand behind what you say. We stand with you, Lord, as yours, and say, come, Lord Jesus, come. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.